This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul Noon. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. Ask the AMPs is where we try to address any and all maintenance questions that come our way. So if you have a maintenance question, reach us at podcasts at aopa.org. And if you like the show, subscribe on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a survey to tell us how we're doing. The link is in the show description this month. And if you enjoy this podcast, you might like to receive our weekly aircraft maintenance stories. Once a week, we send uh, an email that tells you about something interesting that has happened with one of our maintenance clients. And if you'd like to get on the mailing list, simply text the word SAVVY, that's S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777. Once again, that's SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777, and you'll get on the list. I was wrestling with my grease gun yesterday. I had to grease the prop, and I did get it greased, but oh my God, it was like a grease explosion. <laughs> oh, you got to do that really slow. Well, I did. I did. It is, a, but it is a hand pump grease gun, right? It's a hand pump grease gun with Aeroshell 5, and it was so messy. There's grease. You know, you, you push the fitting up against the grease nipple, and you start to squeeze it, and it comes oozing out. It doesn't go in. You have to really hold it with your third hand and squeeze the gun at the same time. And it, it finally pushed out a whole bunch of ugly black-looking grease. Yeah. And then many, I got... How many pumps did it take to do that? A lot. <laughs> I don't know. It took, I took. I had help. You were greasing your Hartzell. My Hartzell, yes. And you finally got grease in it. Yeah, I removed the grease nipple on the far side and squeezed the grease in one side and out the other and did it uh, both ways till we got the black stuff out and the Aeroshell 5 in. But uh, there's got to be an easier way to do this. There's, there's know, no telling how many gallons of, of grease you now have in your prop hub. Well, that's a, <laughs> you, but you're supposed to take the other zerk out, right? So that the yes. excess grease can come out the other side. What it did it yeah. look like? <laughs> well, it was black. The stuff that was in there was black. And the comment from the helper was that was high pressure molybdenum grease that the prop shop put in. But Yeah, now I didn't think anybody used Aeroshell 5 anymore. Because Aeroshell 5 is the stuff that's made out of dead cows, isn't it, Paul? Hey, dead cows. <laughs> well, I always use Aeroshell 22, which is the red stuff. Well, well in the it actually specifies on the propeller hub. It sure does. Which and one to says, use. I have to use five. 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 Yes. And if you use, some of them have six, and if you use six, you don't revert to five. 
But obviously the prop shop didn't didn't use five. Well, or maybe it's old. And yeah, we've yeah. done the same thing. And I don't know what what the prop shops put in there. I've, I've never called and asked. But I normally don't pump until I get grease coming out the other side because I talked to my pro- We used to do that. And sometimes you would pump and pump and pump and, you know, put like the whole gun worth <laughs> in, in the prop. And then the airplane would vibrate because it had all this grease on one side and not on the other side. Well, I know if you if you over grease, the hearts a little tend to start spraying out on the yes. blades and stuff. Well, too. or if you pump it in too fast, you have to pump it in very slowly. Um, but um, I think so, the idea is that you just need like a small glob in there, and then centrifugal force kind of distributes it out to the bearings where where is where it's needed. Yeah. So we called our prop shop, and uh, they said, "No, about three or four pumps. That's uh, all you ever need. Just just oh. three or four." And move on. Well, so it's that, cheap, right? So the grease is cheap. But anyway, the reason why I bring this up is lubrication is an owner, uh, something that an owner can do to maintain their airframe. But I guess there's some pitfalls or minefields here. You need to be careful, especially with your prop. But it's nice to, you know, talk about things that the owners can do, not just, I mean, because this is a show about owner maintenance and understanding your airplane. So, it, it should be a relatively easy thing to do, but I don't find it easy. I find it um, frustrating at times. So I'm looking for your tips, Paul. Oh, well, my tip is <laughs> to <laughs> only to give shot. it about three shots and do it really slow, really Where slow. Where were you yesterday when I needed Our first question is from Philip, who is trying to track down radio gremlins. Go ahead, Philip. Yes, uh, enjoy being on the show. I'm glad you are available to uh, listen to my problem. I have talked to a lot of people about this and uh, still don't have it resolved. I have a 2000 Citabria 7 GCBC. Bought it actually just about exactly two years ago. And uh, for the first few months, everything worked well. And then it started uh, getting reception problems. And it seemed at first that it was a time-sensitive thing. 30 minutes or so in the flight is when it would start. And it was intermittent and it made no sense. Like, for example, one time I was talking to Bradley Approach. They came back. I could hardly hear them. I asked to repeat. And when they repeated, it was crystal clear. And uh, the next day, I was flying the opposite direction, talking to Bradley. It was crystal clear the whole time. And then about 20 minutes later, it started acting up again. It sounds like uh, the reception is clear, but there's a crackling in the background that hides it. And so it can go from being very good to being a little bit unreadable to being completely unreadable. One time I was talking to Approach and I was on VFR flight following and it was getting so bad, I was worried that they were going to say something to me. I wouldn't know what they were saying. So so I, I gave them my tail number and I said I wanted to cancel flight following. And they came back and said something. I have no idea what they said, but I said, have a good day. Thank you for your help. And, you know, squawking VFR. You didn't get a letter from the FAA, so all's good, right? They were about to tell you you were going into a TFR. <laughs> <so that's okay. laughs> um, I've, I've no F-16s. No F-16s. And they didn't come back <clears throat> and say anything unreadable. So I figured I must have said the right thing. I've done a variety of fixes from checking all my mechanics things. It was a loose wiring connection or a shielding problem. We went through all the wiring. We uh, replaced the 430 with a loaner. 
didn't change anything. We uh, inspected all the wiring, the grounding planes. Uh, I added a noise suppressor to the alternator. I uh, then took the fan, uh, the alternator belt off, and it still it didn't do anything. My mechanic wanted me to take off and shut the engine off in flight. <laughs> I like this guy. <laughs> He'll get real quiet. <laughs> I like this guy. I, I, I think glide around for a while and see what it did. Wow. Um, I replaced actually, the spark plug. I actually kind of like that idea. That's, oh. <laughs> I thought you might. I um, replaced the spark plugs as well as the ignition harness. And I also changed out the coils and the capacitors on the mags. And one of the reasons I did that is that the mags had noise, uh, noise suppressors on them. And in talking to American Champion, they didn't come from the factory that way. So mm-hmm. obviously someone else tried to do it. My latest attempted fix was I replaced the 430 with a GNC 355. I replaced the KT-76 transponder with a new Garmin GTX 330. And the best thing I did is I added the number two COM, which was an ICOM I-220. And when we ran the thing, the noise problem was still there. But interesting, when I went to the number two nav, when, I mean, sorry, I keep saying that, number two com, the noise was gone. Hmm. And, the, and the only difference was is that it had a new antenna in a different location on the belly, hmm. and mm-hmm. the belly is a large metal panel. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we switched out the antenna wires, and the, the noise followed the antenna. Mm-hmm. So I'm saying I have Sounds a problem. like the problem's resolved now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but the problem is, is that then we talked to American Champion and we asked the right questions and they confirmed that since they built my airplane at some point, they've started, they moved the antenna forward and they and put a bigger grounding ground plane. plane. Yeah. So my avionics shop is saying, we think that's your answer, but we've had a lot of answers that we thought we were going to solve it that didn't. And putting in a larger grounding plane means fabric work. Which was going to get really expensive. So, wait, wait, my wait, wait. not no, no, as expensive as all those good. radios. <laughs> that's what, that's <laughs> You've already gone expensive. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> now, now it doesn't matter. Yeah, I uh, I had a friend who's uh, restoring a Cetabria right now, and he sent me a picture of the original factory where they put the grounding plane on the top of the fuselage, and then he sent me a picture of what he's doing. And his grounding plane is like four times as big. It's basically the original grounding plane was maybe like a one and a half by one and a half foot that fit in between um, structural components, the wooden structural components. And what he did is the whole, practically the whole roof of the airplane is metal. He recommended not only the grounding plane, but also he said that those connections up there can get corroded over time. And bonding of the ground plane to the antenna and to the rest of the airplane is very critical to, I guess, to reduce ground loops. So if you're back there doing any kind of replacement or at least checking that, you should be checking for the grounding of the whole uh, structure as well as checking for any kind of loose connections with the antenna and probably should replace that antenna. Colleen, do I understand you correctly that you say that doing antenna work can prevent you from ground looping <laughs> a Cetabria? I wish. <laughs> no, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> well, now, you there's, know, there's another possibility. It's the exact same theory. There's to me, there's obviously a ground plane issue. There is aluminum and copper tape that you can attach to the existing ground plane after you fix all the grounding connections. That Colleen talked about because it's an old airplane. Those connections are old. 
not just look at the connections, but take them apart, clean them, put them back together, and then try adding some of these uh, metallic tapes to enlarge the grounding plane. Uh, I think that may be a an inex- relatively inexpensive first try. Now, the existing grounding plane does have spiderweb connections that go to the metal frame. Mm-hmm. Disconnect and all of those, all of clean those. those connections, and put them yep. back together. <laughs> Every one of them. Don't just look at them. Looking doesn't count. Yeah. You, okay. have to, you have to do the touchy-feely thing. Yeah, And, yeah. and by the way, you're going to be a pretzel when you get back there working in behind the back seat. So right. it's not a fun and job. If it is a grounding plane issue, why was it intermittent the problem? Why wouldn't it be there all the time? Builds up static as you fly. That's a good answer. I was going to say things heat up, but I think as things heat up, they conduct better or like a cold junction would be worse than a hot junction, but static, I like that. changes the connections, um, ground, not really ground loops in this case. I know I'm an avionics guy, but ground loops and grounding is a very mysterious kind of science all in itself. One ground wire is good. You think that 20 are better, but actually that can make it worse depending on how they're connected. So (laughs) it's kind of bizarre. But yeah, just the vibration and it's not 100% consistent. So I I think you've got a connection issue as well as the grounding plane may not necessarily need to be enlarged to make it work. But if you're going to be in there doing all this work, enlarge it because it'll really help. Did they ever test the SWRs on the antenna? I'm not sure what that is. Standing wave ratio. So they put a a device in the coax line to the comm antenna and key the transmitter. It's a measurement of how efficient the antenna is, how much is being transmitted versus how much is being reflected back. Okay. I I don't think they did that, but I'm not sure. Yeah. A lot of avionics shops, well, they all have an SWR meter, but they very seldom use it. And it's a really fun tool to have. But at least my situation now is I have one radio that works fine with a good antenna, and the other one is intermittent. So mm. I've, I've stopped spending money for a while. Yeah. Well, you can do this grounding plane stuff. You can get up in there and find those connections. Uh, just relieve the connections, take the pieces apart, clean them up with Scotch Bright, get a little Dow 4 compound, borrow it from somebody, don't buy a whole tube, because I think I still have the tube that I bought like. 40 years ago, and then you just coat the uh, the contact with Dow 4 to keep it from corroding next time. Anyway, clean everything up, put it back together, and see what happens. Okay. Uh, I, I think I'll try doing that. Just pra- practice your pretzel maneuvers before you go back there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we did some of the work from underneath of the belly panels, and, but yeah. then you need long arms. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little too high, right? Yeah. Or, or one of those uh, creepers that kind of elevates you. Right. Like a gurney. Um, <laughs> uh, probably Been inappropriate there. for working on airplanes. Yeah. But it sounds like you're close. It sounds like you're real close, Philip. It's just one more, no more dollars to spend, just a little more uh, elbow grease. Okay. Well, I will do that. Okay. Well, I hope it works out for you. Good luck. Okay. Thank you very much. I really appreciate all your insights. It was a good question. Thanks a lot for calling. Uh, okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, the next question comes from Brad, and I really love this question. He's thinking out of the box. He's wondering how much he should trust his engine. Welcome to the show, Brad. Oh, thanks, Colleen. Thanks for taking my question. So, love the podcast. Look forward to it each month and learned a whole, whole lot. So, 
my question is this. Sometimes I'll take a friend up flying on a 182 and they always ask me, they say, what happens if the engine quits? And so I always tell them, you know, we train for emergencies, et cetera, et cetera. What I'd really like to tell them is that's incredibly rare. But then when you start looking into it, what you realize pretty quickly is there's just a lack of data. And my understanding is the NTSB only tracks engine failures that lead to actual accidents. So engine failures that lead to successful off-field landings or return to the airport really aren't captured, or at least not captured well. And so there's also cases like one, I think, Mike, you referred to one uh, of your customers who landed in, I think, Elko, Nevada for a bathroom break or to get some fuel. And he looked and the underbody of the plane was covered in oil. If they'd continued flying for another hour, you know, that would have led to a catastrophic failure of some kind. So my question is this, how reliable is a well-maintained frequently flown piston GA engine. It's interesting. You, you're right about the NTSB data, of course, that only if, uh, typically, if some, somebody gets hurt, does the NTSB uh, wind up reporting on it. The FAA has done some studies. They don't call them engine failures. They call them power loss events, which I think actually is more accurate because the vast majority of power loss events are not the fault of the engine or the fault of the, the engine not getting enough fuel uh, or something like that, something exterior to, to the engine. There are a lot of, uh, a lot of, of, uh, of fuel starvation, fuel exhaustion kinds of, of accidents. That's probably the most common reason for, for power loss events. The, the other thing that's, that's worth considering is that if you restrict your uh, the consideration to just actual mechanical problems with the engine as opposed to things like not having enough fuel to run most of the most of the issues that happen with piston engines are cylinder related because that's that's the hot section of the engine that's where all the exciting stuff's going on and a cylinder related problem generally does not make you fall out of the sky, particularly if you're flying a six-cylinder engine, like in the Cessna 182, because a six-cylinder engine will make about 80% power on five cylinders. It'll be rough. Uh, you probably will have to change your underwear after you land, but it, but it, it won't cause you to fall out of the sky unless you continue to fly long enough that the engine uses up all its oil, in which case then the bottom end starts to fail and then that gets pretty serious. But for example, the the thing that you were talking about, but it was a, a Cirrus that landed for fuel in, in the backwoods of Nevada and discovered that the airplane was covered with oil and it turned out that that, that a, a, a rocker shaft clamp on one of the cylinders had not been properly secured and, uh, uh, and and it was coming apart. It poked a hole in the rocker cover and that's where all the oil was coming from. And, and if that had been allowed to progress far enough, that cylinder eventually would have shut down because its valve train would have stopped working. And the engine would have started to lose some oil. And if the pilot persisted on flying you know, far enough, he could have conceivably run the engine out of oil, and then it would have failed catastrophically. But, but um, it would take a great lack of situational awareness to do that. Let's put it that way. You know that example, though, Mike. It begs a question for um, for Brad. Is he asking about 
the the total reliability of the engine, which includes the the brain behind it that's operating it and the maintenance-induced failures that could happen? Or is he just asking, I think he said, if it's well-maintained and well-operated, what's its reliability rate? And so the example you gave was a maintenance-induced failure. Right. And, and you know, the, the primary reason for power loss is, 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 is that the pilot does something wrong. And the next most common thing is that some mechanic did something wrong. Is it fair to blame that on the engine? I don't know. It depends on your philosophy or how you're asking the question. But the, the, this thing in Elko was clearly a, a maintenance-induced failure. That The cylinder had been replaced, and the mechanic who assembled the valve train during the cylinder replacement did not properly torque down the, the clamps that held the rocker shaft in place, and then they came loose. Yeah, the real way I'm looking at it is everything other than you know fuel exhaustion. So oh, mechanical failure, okay. whether it's maintenance-induced or whether it's a crankshaft that just breaks. And so what got me to thinking about it is yeah. you know, when I was doing my flight training, I was just leaving the pattern in a 172 and um, had a cylinder problem. And you're right. It is a clean-out-your-pants moment. Um, you, got, you got back and landed. It was fine, but it was scary. I have a flight instructor who's been flying for 40 years, and so is his brother. And they between the two of them, they just had their first catastrophic failure of crankshaft. So that's 80 years of flying almost every day. Yeah. And so and you kind of, you sort of wonder, okay, are these things common or are they not common? Uh, th- that's the real question. So I was able to pull up some data from the 2018 Null report for the period 2006 through 2015. And they were looking at power plant, at accidents attributed to power plant failures. And I don't know whether the failures included fuel starvation and stuff like that. I think it was a mechanical failure, but I'm not clear. They said of all the accidents in that period, that nine-year period, 8.5% of them were due to power plant failures, which came to 82 in a nine-year period. Over how many tens of thousands of hours? Flight hours. So so basically less than one a year? Is that what you're saying? 82 in a nine-year period. So it's more like 10 a year or one a month. Yeah. But I think the null report's based on NTSB data. I think and it so is. So that's where so the to me, that's where the real right. And so I'm right. wondering in y'all's experience, accidents. do you see more than what you would see in the null report? Or, you know, Mike, with your company, you I don't know how many planes you'll manage, but I figure it's in the thousands. You know, is there some you know big data search that can be done on planes that aren't necessarily, you know, going through the NTSB data? I mean, for example, the last catastrophic engine failure that that I'm aware of, and Paul's aware of it, because it happened when I happened to be in Tennessee with with Paul, uh, involved a a Columbia that fell out of the sky, and it turned out the reason it fell out of the sky is because it uh, lost all its oil in flight, and it lost all its oil in flight because a mechanic installed an aluminum oil fitting where a steel fitting should have been installed, and the aluminum fitting uh, fatigue fractured off, and all of the oil went overboard. So, I don't know, was Brad asking, in all of our experience, have we had an engine failure? And I've had one in 4,500 hours, 20, 30 years of flying. I think that's pretty darn good. I have, let's see, actual engine failures that I can't attribute to you know, me doing something stupid or me intentionally taking the airplane out to find out what's going on. Cause I do a lot of, let's just say experimental work, not on experimental airplanes. I have not had, 
I have not had a single failure of an engine, and that's in fifty whatever years of flying. Mm, that's pretty wow. good. And I've I've been flying for fifty five years, and I've been trying my best to double the chance of having an engine failure by by flying a twin. Yes, <laughs> um, and I did have one. I guess you'd call it a catastrophic failure where a piston came apart. But the funny thing about it was, even though a piston coming apart sounds pretty catastrophic, the engine kept running just fine. And and it, did, it wasn't vibrating particularly, and it was producing power and plenty of power. And uh, had it been a single, I would have flown it under power to the airport that I ultimately wound up flying it to uh, and, and making an uneventful landing. Because it was a twin, I elected to shut down the engine because I happened to have a spare. But the engine kept running just fine, even with a with, with a piston that had shed a pretty significant chunk of aluminum into the into the bottom of the engine. So So both of these incidents were successful uh, uneventful landings and not reported, just like you're pointing out. So but both resulted in complete, you know, overhaul of the engine. Well, mine was reported to the FAA only because I because I declared an emergency, oh. and, and the and the FISTO contacted me a couple of days later and said, uh, "We need some information to you from you to complete our uh, event paperwork. report. Some kind of they, <laughs> some kind of paperwork that they yeah. have to do when you when you declare an emergency." But and he did a perfect job, except that he forgot to forget to put the gear down. That's right. Other yeah. than that, it was good. so. So I, I, I had so. I had to pay for it instead of the insurance. Yeah, company. that was seriously. <laughs> that was my big. Well, I think story. what I'll tell my passengers, in, in, in addition to hey, we train for emergencies like that, is based on talking to y'all. It's pretty rare. It it's, is pretty it's, rare. It's very rare. I'm going to make up a number, and I would say that the numbers are probably about four times what the NTSB is showing because mm-hmm. of all the things that are not reported or don't end up as a. You know, somebody did something not quite right, but they made it back to the airport kind of thing. And what the FAA hears about, the NTSB doesn't. So, you know, just making that up. Now, remember, the um, the probability of an engine failure goes up catastrophically as you go over water. So you have to make sure and explain that. Or or dark if you're flying over mountains yeah. at night. Yeah. My, my Comanche that I had years ago, was I was convinced it was solar powered because as soon as the sun went down, it made weird noises. I, there were funny <laughs> smells in the airplane. The vibration changed. It, I quit flying at night. It was terrible. Yeah. I'll tell you something funny somebody told me one time is, you know, when you're doing your private pilot training, you talk about engine failures all the time, and once you start your engine training, you don't talk about it at all. <laughs> so, yeah, that is weird. <laughs> but hey, before yeah. we go, I'd like to just thank you guys for a great podcast, and then also mention, you know, Mike, I'm a happy customer of your company, and then uh, Paul, I took your course on uh, 182s. Unfortunately, I had to take it uh, online, but it's still a great course, and I appreciate it. Good. I'm glad you enjoyed it, so. and and stuck with it. That's. I listened to about five minutes of one of them. I couldn't stake it. I, I had to turn it off. <laughs> well, just for the record, we didn't pay Brad to come on and, and pump us up like this. It's We really appreciate the kind words. We're, we're going to invite him to come back next month. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for the question. I, like I said, that was very interesting. I like talking. I like to um, encourage people to not be worried about aircraft. I don't think they're any more inherently dangerous than any other mode of transportation. Actually, I feel safer in the air than I do driving to the airport. It's good to hear. All right. Thank yeah. you. Yeah.
Okay. Thanks, Brett. Thanks for the call. All right. So our next question is from Gary, who is thinking about overhauling his engine, and we are going to do our best to talk him out of overhauling said engine. Hey, Gary. (laughs) Good afternoon. So I've been flying a 72 uh, Turbo Centurion for 26 years now. Wow, that's cool. Over uh, 2,100 hours on the engine. Uh, Mm -hmm. It only had 40 hours on it when we acquired it back in 95. Oh, wow. Uh, So the last annual, we had compressions that were kind of in the low 60s. We had 169, 460, and 159. So, you know, it's it's one of these things I knew it was going to eventually be coming. I fly it fairly conservatively, usually about uh, 60% power, because I figured, you know, it's going to be an expensive thing to uh, to change. So I wanted to see if we could stretch it as long as I possibly could. I took the CPA course. Uh, so, Mike, I don't know if you remember back in 96, mine was a guinea pig uh, airplane <laughs> that was no. put out there for everybody to look at because I just acquired it and I wanted to find out what you guys knew about it. And it seemed like every time we went to a new area, I got the, oh, <laughs> yeah, <that's> uh-oh. <laughs> or the, hey, come look at this. Yeah. That's my so, favorite. <laughs> anyway, uh, we just finished a fairly lengthy trip. We went uh, cross-country, Southern California, New York, Maine, uh, Northeast Coast, and then back again. Put about 45 hours on it during that time. Plane mm-hmm. ran fine. And it's only using like maybe a quart of oil every 25 to 30 hours. Oh, my God. Shall we we all ask the question simultaneously? What What on earth are you you thinking? thinking? (laughs) Why would you touch that engine? Don't mess with a good thing. What is, name one thing in all the stuff you know about this engine or that your mechanic knows about the engine that makes you think that it needs an overhaul? I guess just thinking that the compression numbers are starting to get low, I have noticed that it's maybe not getting as as much power. I know that during climb out that I'm having to adjust the manifold pressure to keep it up there. Okay. So far, the the compressions have absolutely nothing to do with the performance of the engine. Continental did some extensive test cell runs where they intentionally filed the ring gaps of, 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 of uh, the pistons, piston rings, oversized compression rings, to reduce the compression down to 40 over 80. And they ran this engine at 40 over 80 on a test cell, on the, their dynamometer test cell, and put out exactly the same amount of horsepower as the engine did when, when all the cylinders were measuring in the mid-70s. Now, it blew a lot more oil out the breather, but it made exactly the same amount of power. So the the notion that compression is somehow related to uh, power or performance is just absolutely incorrect. And furthermore, you say that the compressions are low, but they're not low. Continentals, by continental standards, anything above somewhere in the low 40s is acceptable. So you're not even close to that. So I I I, I can't, and, and besides, even if a cylinder measures a compression down in the 30s, Continental doesn't say replace the cylinder. Continental says, go fly the airplane and check it again. 
Poroscope, but then fly. Exactly. And uh, I, I remember one Cirrus client we had down in Florida where the where he had a, a, a cylinder measuring 38 over 80 during the annual, and the IA wanted to pull a cylinder. And we said, no, don't pull a cylinder. That's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to stick a boroscope in there. So stuck a boroscope in there, looked around, couldn't find anything wrong. He said, well, I still have to pull a cylinder because it's, it's 38 over 80, and, and, the, and the master orifice threshold is only 42, and we can't, so I can't sign off the cylinder. We said, no, that's not what Continental says to do. Continental says to go fly the airplane. Well, how am I going to, how's he going to go fly the airplane unless I sign off the annual? And how am I going to sign off the annual with 38 over 80? So I had this long talk with the IAA. And I said, you're going to sign off the annual as airworthy because that's what Continental tells you to do in its documentation. And he grudgingly did that with a promise that the owner would go fly the airplane for an hour, come back and let him recheck the cylinder, which he did. And we said, well, when, when the guy comes back from his flight, we want you standing there with your compression tester and your air hose and, and your spark plug wrench. And we want you and your number two Phillips screwdriver. We want you all ready to go. Test that cylinder hot. Don't touch any of the other cylinders. They've already passed. And he tested the, the low cylinder the second time, and it was 72 over 80, which basically tells you that compression readings are garbage. <laughs> they just don't mean anything. Can can you tell that you kind of hit a little button with that? <laughs> so now I'm gonna I'm gonna lay in a little bit more for you here. And as Mike, we've had this discussion many times before. Cylinders on are, are an accessory, so they right. can be changed. So we don't worry about that. But you're concerned about in terms of an overhaul or splitting the case halves is the bottom end of the engine. So crank shaft, cam shaft, those sort of things. The crankshaft you'll learn about by seeing Babbitt material in the oil analysis. You haven't mentioned that, so assume you're doing some oil analysis. Um, yeah, we're shake. kind of back okay. on a regular basis with that. Good. Okay. The other thing you can do is look at the camshaft. There's a couple ways to do that. You have you still have the 520 installed? Correct. Okay. So take uh, your $200 borescope and run it down through the oil filler port on top of the engine. And you can see two cam lobes and three lifters. That'll give you a real good idea. Look at the apex of the cam lobes. You'll see if they're worn. Because if you're losing power, if you're in fact losing power, one of the ways you lose power is by not opening the uh, exhaust valves and the intake valves fully. And that'll show up on the on the camshaft. Hmm. If you want to see more than that, you can have some lifters pulled out. Pull out say the intake lifters on one side because they're all the intake lobes are doubled. So you'll get to see the cam lobe is extra wide because it drives the intake lifters on both sides of the engine. So you can pull three lifters. But, but, but Paul, why would he want to do that? What, why would he want to go looking for trouble like that? <laughs> if, the, if the cam and lifters are coming apart, He'll find out soon enough because one day he'll do an oil change and he'll find a bunch of ferrous metal in the oil filter. Well, I'm not saying he should and, go And look. there's no particular reason to be interested in, in knowing it any earlier than you need to know it because it's not a safety of flight issue. It's not going to cause the airplane to fall out of the sky. So why start taking the engine apart be, looking for it? Because he asked about the low he power. He asked about That's the low why. power. I was just giving him something... Because cylinders are not causing his low power. Right. I'm right. explaining to him what would explain the low power. Yeah. But there are other ways to check as well. If you just have to know, you can check for valve lift, which can be done just by pulling the valve covers off. Mm -hmm. But none of this is particularly 
valuable. You you haven't said anything yet that explains a valid reason to pull the engine off. So so the typical person wants a bright, new, shiny thing, right? And and I get it. I bought my airplane and I, I flew it the entire time. And, and it's like, oh, it's really old now. And I wonder what's going on inside the engine. And so I succumbed to the overhaul boogeyman and did it. And now that I've done it, I kind of wish I hadn't because A, it was expensive. And the old engine B, ran better. <laughs> B, well, I'm getting there. <laughs> B... The airplane was down for four months because yours truly was doing the overhaul and it took me forever to get to it and rehang it. And then see, overhauls are risky. As soon as I put my engine back together and put it on the airplane, an AD came out on the uh, connecting rod bushings. And I'm really lucky that my connecting rods weren't subject to that because if they were, I would have been taking it back apart again. In other words, when you do an overhaul, you you put all these foreign new things into the engine and they might have problems and then they might introduce more problems down the road. Your engine is tried and true. Everything that's in there now has been working properly for many years. And unless you have an indication that something's going wrong in the bottom end, just let it ride. Yeah, and that gotta was be looking. Be my follow-up question: Like, what sort of things might I be looking for? What sort of indicators, other than like you're you're saying, you know, metal in the um, in the filter, cracks in the case would be an issue, um, or a serious oil leak that requires splitting the case would be reason for overhaul. And or, not and not all yeah. case cracks render the yeah. case unairworthy. It depends on where the crack is and how long it is. Yeah, but the, the list has of very specific guidance on that. It's a very short list for why you would split the bottom end. Um, but most people do it because they feel like, oh, I, I just f- would feel better with something new. And what I'm trying to say is new is not necessarily better. Tried and true is better. Broken in is better. Or the, uh, oh, let's do a top overhaul. It's just, no, just don't. If a cylinder really needs to be replaced because a valve's bad or something, do one cylinder. You don't need to do them all. You know, I I left two cylinders on my engine original for 2,700 hours. And the, the reason why I decided to pull them was I was getting a lot of blow-by because they were getting tired. I mean, they are uh, replaceable items. They're accessories, like Paul said. They're meant to be strapped on and used, and they wear. But you don't need to do them all at once to try to do them selectively when they require it. Good info. All right. Were we successful? Uh, I'm not in any hurry to go in. Uh... Hey, there you <laughs> go. We were successful. We those, were the, those were the magic words. I'm That's not in any hurry. I like it. Well, it was nice to be able to do this trip. And it's like, okay, uh, prior to going out, I was thinking, uh, is it going to be an issue? And we had no issue. The thing ran no. fine. I mean, we did uh, several four and a half, five hour legs and just putting down to get fuel and, and get a bite to eat and take a bio break. So other than that, uh, the plane ran well. So here's, here's a couple of phrases to watch out for when somebody says, well, the engine's just getting tired. tired. <laughs> and, and <laughs> like they it always, needs a nap. <laughs> yes. They always say it, you know, like it's getting tired, you know, like that somehow the engine has a clue what that means. Sleep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so and when you ask them, well, should I get an overhaul? And they say, oh, yes, you should get an overhaul. Why should I get an overhaul? Well, it has 2,100 hours. It's tired. No, no, it's not tired. And that's not a valid reason to get an overhaul. Yeah. Well, you need, to, you need to do a complete top overhaul. Why do I need to do that? Well, one of the cylinders is getting <laughs> low and the others are soon to follow. No, yeah. no, no. That's not a valid answer. 
if someone tells you specifically your camshaft has cracks in the top of the of the lobes mm. that exceeds Continental's allowances, boom, now you have a reason to pull the engine. Yeah. But there's an awful lot of reasons given and one bad oil analysis or one time having some metal in the oil filter is not a case to go rip the engine off the airplane. It's a case to start looking for what's going on. But we're we're not just ripping stuff apart. Well, Gary, thanks for the call. Any did did we so we're going to call this a score for our side. Yeah. Uh, we're only going to charge 10% of what we saved you on this call. How about that? As our as our consulting commission, right? <laughs> anyway, keep it up. Enjoy the podcast. And uh, look, I was listening to some of the other uh, responses earlier, so I'm going to go back and take some notes. Awesome. <laughs> okay. Well, good luck with the non-overhaul, Gary. Thanks Bye. so much. Thank you. Our next question is from Mark, who wants to manage the big maintenance risks on his airplanes. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you. I'm a renter. I belong to a flying club in, in uh, Livermore, California. And um, big club, 250 pilots, seven aircraft. We're about to buy an eighth. Many of the members are NPs, IAs, really stay on top of the planes. The planes fly just about continuously. In general, I'm not too worried about flying these aircraft. But, you know, you told a story once, Mike, about this bonanza that went down after somebody put some sealant between the head and the cylinder, which really was chilling because it was such an innocuous thing for the mechanics to have done, ended in such tragedy. And I got to thinking, what else can I do besides my pre-flight to inoculate myself from some of these maintenance-induced risks? And I say inoculate because, you know, we we know inoculations aren't 100% perfect. But is there more I can do? I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be bringing a torque wrench to the plane every time I go out. But it feels like there's something I should be able to do. And I'm just not sure what that might be. I thought you might have some insight into what I might think about. Well, I don't I don't know if if you are the maintenance officer for this club or if you have influence over the maintenance. or. So, but I mean, the biggest thing anybody can do. And, and you know your example of the of the well intentioned mechanic that that put some sealant uh, on on the cylinder base O ring because he heard somebody at Continental raving about this new sealant that they just come out with, which was good for stopping oil leaks, and he figured it was a good thing to do, and it wound up creating a tragedy. The best thing you can do is not let anybody take your airplane apart unless there's absolutely no alternative that's the you know one of the reasons that we don't like to remove cylinders is because there are a thousand ways to screw it up when you put them back on and you can't even predict all the ways it's like open heart surgery and the problem is that mechanics do this every day of the week and so to them it's totally routine most mechanics in my view do not have an appropriate level of fear about about the stuff that they do and and what the consequences could be and the biggest thing you can do is to try to minimize the amount of invasive maintenance that's done to the airplane 
and to say no to anything that is absolutely not, you know, unless you're persuaded that it's absolutely necessary to do it and that there's no less invasive way to do it. For example, you know, one of the primary causes for cylinders to be removed is because of burned exhaust valves. But we've had great success resolving burned exhaust valves by lapping the valves in place without removing the cylinder. You can do that if you catch the problem early enough before a great deal of metal erosion has occurred or before the valve starts to warp real bad. And you can detect it early enough if you just borescope the cylinder regularly and take a look at the valves. So with, with proper surveillance and catching these things early, you, you shouldn't, you know, it's, it's the difference between a lumpectomy and a mastectomy, you know. This concept of invasive equals risky and wanting to minimize the amount of invasive maintenance that's done because it carries risk along with it. It is something that is, it's just one of my, you know, missions in life to get this across to as many mechanics as I can and to as many aircraft owners as I can. Because we, we take these airplanes apart and put them back together way more often than they, than, than we need to. And, you know, if, if you read my book, A Manifesto, the, you know, and, and, and Colleen originally put this, put me onto this like years ago. You know, th this was something that was discovered back in World War II. That the more the more preventive maintenance you do to airplanes, the, the the less reliable they become. And then it was rediscovered in the late '60s at United Airlines. And it, it's it's I mean, there's just a, a a mountain of data that that makes it very clear that that we shouldn't be taking things apart if we don't if if we don't have to. Mike actually got real excited when I sent him a paper written by this this uh, American operations research scientist in World War II because he he always knew that this was a truth, but this guy actually had data, field data, that supported that reliability and availability would increase if you stop doing preventative maintenance. And he got so excited. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about data. <laughs> well, so it's interesting. I was in a club meeting recently in the maintenance um, VP talked about um, we're getting close to TBO. And the first thing he said was, we know we don't have to tear the engine out of TBO. And I thought, okay, so that message is getting through. Do you have a sense for how effective the message is getting through? I can't tell from your webinars how big your audiences are. But, you know, it's so appealing. It seems obvious to me this must be catching on. And if you've never thought of it, you must say, well, of course, this is the way we should think about it. But do you have any sense for whether the message is catching on at this point? Maybe I, I, less pushback from mechanics. Uh, yes, I, I have. I have a clear sense that it's catching on, but it takes a long time. I, you know, I, I remember twenty years ago when my good friend George Brawley started preaching the gospel of Lena Peak, and everybody thought he was an absolute crazy man, and that anybody who followed his advice was going to die. And you know, it took 20 years before the gospel of George became well accepted in the community. And there are still some holdouts that, that still say, hey, if you operate Lena Peak, you know, you're going to die and fuel is cheaper than engines and all of that kind of stuff. But this is an industry that resists change. And part of the reason it resists change is because it's, it's a very litigious business. 
And another reason that that it resists change is be, because mechanics go through A and P school and it's pounded into their head. You do everything by the book. You have to do everything by the book. Well, the damn books were written 30 years ago before we knew a lot of what we know now, before we even had the ability to instrument the stuff that we now can instrument. And there's no recurrent training for AMPs, no requirement really? for recurrent Not training. Not a dot. Not wow. a single dot. For IAs, or, maybe. No, minimal. No. Only, wow. well, for IAs, a seminar, if you okay. do your eight uh, annuals per year, you don't even have to go to a seminar. That, that's true. Yeah. There is zero required recurrence. Yeah, training. so where are they going to learn this so if, stuff? If, 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 if you pencil whip eight annuals a year, is that what you think? <laughs> that's, I, I didn't use that term. <laughs> I'm but, very but, careful with but, my words. But to, to you know, directly answer your question, I do think that we're we're at a, a a tipping point in this in this area. Five years ago, if I got an email from an A and P, it usually was a complaint. Why are you always bashing A and P's? And I said, I, I'm not bashing A and P's. I'm only bashing bad A and P's. You know, but the distinction seemed to be lost. Now, when I get an email from an A and P. It's almost never a complaint. It's almost always a, can you help me find this problem? I've been, you know, tearing my hair out and I can't figure out what's wrong. To me, that's a, that's a huge change. And, and I think it, it means that the, that the message is, is getting through finally in the same way that it took a long time for George's message to get through. That's very encouraging. Well, great stuff. I really appreciate uh, the conversation. And um, as I said, love your show. And, and Mark, you know, the ultimate way of knowing that your airplane is well-maintained is to do what Mike and I have done, and that is to become more involved in the maintenance. I don't, you know, when you buy an airplane, if you're thinking about that, that would be a good chance to do that. Yeah, I'm the guy, Mike, who sent you a note recently, do you offer your services for the flight design LSA? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I've, uh, I've got to get my five hours of dual in before I can get one insured, but uh, soon I will join the ranks. And, um, excellent. Oh, excellent. I'll try to take everything I've heard from you guys to heart. Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, for me, that was the ultimate way and being confident in how my maintenance was being done. And I only have myself to blame. That's the best part. <laughs> if anything. Uh, that's a motivator. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Well, good luck with the, the flight design. That's going to be a great plane for you, Mark. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Bye-bye. See you, Mark. So our next question is from Ryan, who's uh, got a 182 and wondering where his fuel is going. How you doing, Ryan? I'm doing fine, Paul. Thanks. So I do have a question about where, where my fuel is. That's a perfect way to put it. I was on a long cross-country. I finally developed the, the courage, I guess, to try the leaning method for the JPI, the, the um, auto lean feature, hmm. and ended up flying a lot richer than normal. And I got to looking at the fuel flow, which was um, was about 9,500 feet, and it was reading about 14 gallons per hour. So I looked in the POH, and the POH said I should be running about, what did it say, 9.3, about Mm -hmm. 50% higher. And uh, I I guess I was hoping it was a miscalibrated fuel flow, but when I landed, I did this twice. When I landed, the gas tank agreed with the JPI. So I had to assume that 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 is really what it's flowing. So I I don't know if the marketing guys at Cessna got to put the numbers in or or if there's something wrong with my engine. And that's kind of why that's my... More like the aerosol guys, (laughs) right? (laughs) Well, 
you know, the first thing when when Cessna went through your 182Q and created everything, it you know, it's carbureted. They didn't have a multi-probe engine monitor. Well, the test guys may have, but you're using a totally different set of information to fly the airplane with. So I don't do the uh, JPI lean find thing, especially with your engine, because if you do the factory leaning method, which is you lean it back until it's rough and then enriching it till it's smooth, you'll probably get to that 9.3 gallons an hour. And on a 182, typically you'll have two cylinders lean a peak, two at peak, and two rich a peak. So if you're using the JPI method and you get to 14 gallons an hour, you're running really rich. But I'm curious, before we get into answering the question, what kind of uh, true airspeed were you getting at 9,500 feet and 14 gallons an hour? About 140? Uh, um, I wasn't in a hurry. I, I was running about 2,100 RPM, so probably about 115. Oh, you were at 2,100 RPM and 14 gallons an hour? <laughs> yes. That's really rich. Yeah, of course, mm-hmm. the, uh, that high, the, the, it wasn't 2,121. And, and actually, you talked about that in your class to ignore that. But it was probably 2,120 because of the outside air pressure. Yeah. So I can answer your, your question about where your fuel is going. It's all going out the exhaust pipe. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Paul, Paul, uh, while you were speculating, I was actually looking at the at the engine monitor data that Ryan was kind enough to upload to the Savvy Analysis platform so that we could take a look at it. Let me start by saying that that I, I agree with Paul one hundred percent that it's that the lean find feature of those engine monitors is a, not a good thing to use, and we never use them. But what I can tell you looking at the engine monitor data is you couldn't have used the lean find feature because you never got anywhere close to peak EGT. And I'm looking at where you where you did the leaning because you can see a, a, a notch in the fuel flow where the fuel flow came, came down in, in, and then came right back up in sort of a V-shaped pattern over a period of about 45 seconds, which is obviously when you were trying to use the lean find feature. But the fuel flow started at 14 gallons an hour and only got at its very lowest to 13 gallons an hour before before you went back in the other direction and put it back at 14 gallons an hour. And none of the EGTs came close to getting to peak. So we, we don't know where they would have peaked uh, we don't know what the fuel flow would have been if you got peak to peak because you never even got close to getting to peak. And if the lean find feature was telling you that you'd reach peak EGT, then it was lying to you. It could be operator error too. I, I, I you know, maybe what I really need is some some uh, encouragement because I'm really leery about touching that knob. But we 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 don't we don't we don't recommend using the lean find feature in any event. And um, you know, as Paul said. With the 182, I don't know very much about them because I've only got about 4,000 hours in 182s. Uh, but uh, you can't you 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 can't do much better than leaning to the onset of roughness and then enriching just barely enough for the roughness to go away. Don't use the procedure that that I've heard some flight instructors say, which is that you lean to the onset of roughness, enriching until the roughness goes away. And then push the control an extra half inch just to be on the safe side. Don't do it that way. (laughs) 
but um, uh, it would have been very interesting to see you do a, a full lean sweep, and we could see just how the mixture maldistribution that the 0470 is so famous for having, how how pronounced it was. One, one thing I did find interesting in, in this little very tiny experiment you did where you brought the fuel flow from 14 to 13 and then went right up to 14, is that in the course of doing that, the, the odd-numbered cylinder ETGs changed about 65 degrees and the even number ones changed about twenty five degrees. Yeah, it was really so in, obvious. In, in addition to to the usual fore and aft thing, where these engines are, are kind of famous that the front cylinders run rich and the rear cylinders run lean, and that's just kind of the way they were designed. But in 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 your particular engine, I suspect that there's there's some differential between the left side and the right side as well. Uh, but we, we couldn't we couldn't. There's not enough data here to really analyze it because you never got the mixture control near lean enough to be able to really see where these cylinders were going to reach peak EGT and now, Ryan, what, what uh, would happen after you got to peak EGT. Ryan, uh, I use a JPI, and I do use the lean find, but I often, I know, I know. We're, we're allowed to descend here sometimes. Um, but I often find that it has a false reading of the peak and and I have to redo it. And, and I always check the number when I've got it done. And if that number doesn't look like what I'm expecting, then I do it over or I just do what I'm expecting. In other words, I override it a lot of times because sometimes it gives me a false reading. So you should have gone with your intuition. 14 was way too high. I did look at your fuel burn over your entire flight profile and did like a rough adding up. And um, it, it it showed about 45 gallons used. You said you put in 46. So the actual fuel flowage that uh, the JPI was measuring was correct. I would say it's it's pretty accurate. You might have to adjust that K factor a little bit, but you're, you're pretty close. I mean, you made it sound from some of the comments you made, like somehow you're a little bit afraid of the red knob and that you could do something bad to the engine. You can't do anything bad to the engine. And if, if the, if the, if the thing that I'm looking at is not lying to me, it, it, it says that you took off from Arapahoe County Airport in Denver. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is, is that correct? Well, if you're taking off at 5,000 feet, uh, um, you, you can't possibly hurt anything with a mixture control. You could rip it out of the panel, throw it out the storm window, and it wouldn't hurt anything. <laughs> Except that the engine would quit. But short of that, yeah, the engine, <laughs> well, if the engine's that. still running, you're fine. Yeah. Well, that if the engine quit, we could diagnose that, you know, the previous caller's radio problem. <laughs> it's not making no. enough power. Yeah. But no, seriously, do, do not be afraid of the red knob. Uh, I would encourage you to experiment with it and to find just how lean that engine can go before it starts protesting. Uh, engines have a way of talking to you and, uh, you know, it's it's good to listen to them, but don't be afraid of them talking to you. Because it doesn't, it's not going to hurt anything. Yeah, at your altitude, you're not getting more than about 65, 70% power on a good day. And you're, it's so low, you don't have any detonation problems. So you can you can lean it anywhere. As long as the engine is is running, it's not hurting a thing. Okay, well, that was that was the trip back. Um, I, li I live in the swamp of Houston down here at Sheila. <laughs> oh, no. okay. Uh, yeah. Well, the, your problem is not leaning, it's corrosion. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, I think for sure when I go back and read your book, Mike, I'm going to read it in your voice next time instead of in my voice. So that's nice. <laughs> there you go. 
So when you when you climb out, like in the CPA class, and you'll find in Mike's writings as well, note the EGT. Just pick an EGT on that initial climb out below a thousand feet. See what it is, and then lean the engine in the climb to maintain that EGT, so that you have better power in the climb. Waste less fuel out of the exhaust pipe. As long as your CHTs are staying down below about 400, you'll have a much faster climb and use less fuel to get there. Okay. If you don't remember that, that, it's in clean clean combustion chambers too. Clean combustion chambers. Yep. Don't don't climb full rich. Continental used to say full rich below 5,000, and they modified it to full rich below three. But I would say. Uh, full rich at low altitude takeoffs and then begin leaning as you climb as soon as you're not so busy that leaning is a problem. Understood. Okay. I will try that. Yeah. Enjoy. Experiment. Enjoy your engine monitor. <laughs> That's great. But don't use the lean find. Feet. Don't use the lean. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for your advice. Um, I love your show. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate the call. See ya. It's not a feature. It's a bug. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a wrap. We know a lot more about maintenance than podcasting, so we'd love to hear from you. Give us your ideas on what you'd like to hear. Send your questions and comments to podcasts at aopa.org. Fly safely and have fun, and we'll see you next time. See you. Bye-bye.